Happy New Year. And I hope you had a meaningful Christmas, merry as it may have been or not, that it was meaningful. And thank you for being here today. We're glad you're here. Those of you who uh, are here want to be here, and those who aren't, aren't here. And as I, I looked out about 1025, and I go, wow, there's going to be about 20 of us here. <laughs> so thank you for coming, because we're just going to have a Bible study, and I think we're just going to do that anyway. We're finishing uh, our topic on the five shortest books of the Bible. We'll do that right now. Let me tell you where we're heading. Uh, next week begins all our ministries again, our groups and all the things. So we'll be announcing that next week. Nothing much happening this week. A few things are happening, but next week it all picks back up. And then on uh, January 20th, on a Friday night, we're going to have a night of worship here. So if you love what our team does today, we had a smaller group, but the whole band and all the singers and Clay and the team, they'll be here. Some special things will happen that night. We'll announce it more, but on a Friday night, 7 o'clock, January 20th, going to have just all worship that night. So it's going to be a wonderful time led by our team here. We used to do it a lot before COVID. Then COVID kind of messed us up and our cycle and the whole thing. So we haven't done it in a while. And so I think the last time we did it, we did it up on the rooftop two years ago, which kind of brought us back, if you remember that, before the night on the rooftops that we do now at Christmas. So we're glad you're here. If you need to know anything about our church, go to the back afterwards. Also, if you want to talk to someone spiritually, come forward afterwards. We're going to sing a song at the end and come forward. But we're glad you're here. It's a new year. For God, God is timeless. So January 1st, December 31st, it doesn't mean anything. But to us, it does, doesn't it? It's like a new beginning, a new opening. For God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it doesn't matter to him, but it does matter to us. So we're glad you're here today. So if you have your Bibles... Turn to Jude, which is the next to last book in the Bible. If you don't have your Bible, take the one in front of you and turn to it. It's a great little book, one page. Again, if you're new or you're visiting, we have been working on the five shortest books in the Bible over the last five or six weeks, just before Christmas. Then we stopped, and it was, well, can you help me? What's the one in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? Obadiah. So we did Obadiah, then we did Philemon, and then we did 2 John and 3 John, and now we're doing Jude. We started Jude a couple weeks ago, and then I said we'd stop it for Christmas. And here's the thing about Jude, and I forgot it until I started studying it about two months ago. It's, it's, it's one chapter, it's one of the five shortest books. It probably has more content in it than any one chapter in the Bible. I thought I could probably do 10 sermons in this one chapter, easily do 10, and I'm only gonna do two because we're gonna finish it today and begin on a whole new journey next week. So for those of you who like it when I go word for word and I explain every word, it cannot happen here today. You're gonna have to do some of your own digging because he gives seven Old Testament examples of what he's trying to share with us. Now, if I explained all seven of those Old Testament examples, I could do one or two and we'd be here forever. But it's a pretty interesting thing. I gave a theme to each book, 
I said, small book, big idea. What is the big idea here? It's the same one that I said a couple of weeks ago. And we don't have any slides today because we gave everybody kind of the day off. So I'm glad I have sound. We have some lights. We have some music. But we gave everybody else the day off. But, uh, so we don't have slides. But here is the statement. Common salvation, uncommon response. Common salvation, uncommon response. There are three groups of people that are written about in this book, this one chapter. The ungodly, the followers of Christ, and God and Christ himself. So the Holy Trinity is one, the followers of Christ is two, and then the ungodly is three. And he begins with the ungodly. I, I taught in verses one through five the other day, but let's just start and pick it up in verse three. It says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, there it is, it's about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Why did he say that? Because there are uncommon responses to the common salvation. And you need to contend for the faith because there's a right way to respond to salvation, to the message of Christ, and there is a wrong way to respond to it. And I need you, listeners of the book of Jude, to respond rightly to this. And he's speaking to us in the 21st century, extended out because he's writing to the church. This is the dispersed church. Just a reminder, some books are written uh, to a specific group, to the book of Romans, to the Romans, to Corinthians, to the Corinth people, to Galatians, to the people of Galatia. This is written to the dispersed church, and we'll see that in a few moments. This is written to everybody. It's one of the last books of the Bible written. We're not exactly sure the exact date it was written, but it's one of the last. That's why it's towards the end as well. And he's writing to us. Now, he talks about the ungodly first. So can I share a little of that? Let's start in verse 5. Now again, if I go a little fast over this, all the examples he gives are in the first five books of the Bible, which are known as the Pentateuch, or the Jewish scriptures call it the Torah. There's a couple other names. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So these examples are all in that portion of the Bible. So if you want to study them deeper, you can go there. You can just look up on an app put up one of these names and it'll give you the verses and chapter and you can read them and understand the full story. But he starts with this. He goes, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, now here's the interesting thing. He brings Jesus into the Pentateuch. He brings Jesus into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We used to think, not we, people used to think and still many do, that we have a trinity and we have three parts of the Bible and the trinity each had a part in the Bible. So God the Father was in the early part. During the Gospels, it was Jesus Christ. And then during the New Testament era, it's the Holy Spirit because that's kind of when we talk about each of these. But the reality is all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there at all times. 
Please understand that. We are Trinitarians. We are not Unitarians. We don't believe there's a God, and then there's Jesus, and then there's this like ethereal, cloudy Holy Spirit that kind of comes around every so often. No, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you refer to God the Father, it's also God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's a rare exception of that, which we deal with at Easter, but other than that, it's all three. If you get one, you get them all. And so here it says, Jesus was there. Where was he? Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So the first story is the book of Exodus, and the story of the Exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt back into the promised land. It's too long to describe that story. If you don't know that story, it is one of the most important stories of the Bible because it's the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and ending up going with Joseph, uh, Jacob and Joseph and all of their progeny going to Egypt and staying there for 400 or so years and then coming back to the promised land. It's a key important story to the book of Exodus. And he says, I brought him out, Jesus, not I, Jesus brought him out, God brought him out, and yet afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. I want you to hold that thought. There's a thought here where Christ saves and Christ judges. Now, I know we don't like to talk about the judgment of Christ. We like to talk about the judgment of God every so often, but we don't like to talk about the judgment of Christ. But please understand, there is he saved them and some, and then some who messed up, he judged them. Let's hold that thought. And then he, in verse six, goes to a second story in the Old Testament, which is very unknown by most people. It's one of the lesser known lessons or stories in the Old Testament. And it's in Genesis chapter six, and here's what it is. It says, and the angels who did not stay within their own possession of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept, he being Christ, has kept in eternal chains until un, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What on earth is this? If you read Genesis chapter six, you'll realize there were angels, and we all know this, there's people on earth. The angels saw the beautiful women on earth and decided that they wanted to come down and have relations with the women. They probably entered the men, there was possession, they married the women. The Bible says they even had children, the children became giants. It's an amazing story, pre-flood story, and God was having none of this. And God judged these angels and has held them in captivity until the final judgment. It's interesting, people go, are there really giants? Were there giants back then? The answer is yes, they were giants. I don't think they were 30 feet tall. They might've been eight, nine feet tall, but there were giants and they are throughout the history of all the legends of the old world of Mesopotamia and all, there were giants and this is how they came about. It's an amazing story. And Jude says, God had no part in this. So he's judging the people coming out of Egypt into Israel, those who disobeyed. He's judging the angels who fell. There's a judgment of the angels as well. And then he goes to a third one, and this is 
fairly well known, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse seven. Now, just to give you a little context on this, is this is in, this, he's going backwards and forwards. He's not doing this chronologically. So he started with Israel coming back. Then he, then he went early to the story of the angels. Now he's kind of in the middle here. And what happened was, this is the time of Abraham and his nephew Lot. Abraham and Lot had come to the promised land. They were there, they got too big. There were just too many of them. They think there was probably over a thousand people with Abraham and maybe as many as 800 to a thousand with Lot and all their herds of thousands of animals and they couldn't live together. There wasn't enough water, there wasn't enough grass, wasn't enough resources to feed all these animals and people. So Abraham got to the top of a hill overlooking to the east. When we go, we're taking 30 people to Israel, we're gonna be right there. We don't know if it's the exact spot, but it's in the same little range right there. And he looks down, and down in the valley where the Jordan River is are five cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are two of them. And then up above is the ridge line. And Abraham goes, you can have anything you want, Lot. Do you want this or do you want that? And he says, I want that. You remember that story? And he goes down, and why did he want that? First of all, there were people there. Second of all, there was a river there. He didn't have to dig wells anymore. There was the Jordan River. He was tired of digging wells. There's the Jordan River. I can feed my people. They can have community with these people. Lot wasn't the smartest guy in terms of spirituality. He went down there, and all kinds of chaos happened. The stories are just, it goes on and on about the chaos. And I, don't, I can't tell you about it all except this, that Sodom and Gomorrah was a hellhole. It was a lot of sin and sin, sin, sin. And here's an interesting thing. The angels came down to do something to the women. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the men wanted to do something to the angels. If you know the storyline, it's quite interesting. Angels are involved in both storylines, where the angels wanted to affect the women, and in Sodom and Gomorrah, the men wanted to affect the angels in a negative way, in a sinful way. And you remember God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says it here. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, there were five cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I know it's the first day of the year and we want to be really, really, really positive. And I am like a really, really, really positive guy. I'm like, my gift is inspiring people. That's, I just love inspiring people. And today I'm talking about eternal judgment. I'm not talking about eternal judgment. The Bible's talking about eternal judgment. It just so happens that I'm reading that part today. It's interesting, if you go to verse eight, how did they do it? How did they accomplish their sin? These three areas the people out of coming back to the promised land, those angels that came down, and then the evil done in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, in like manner, these people, these people are the people of those three stories in verse eight, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme God. You wanna know how you just wanna sin? You defile your flesh, 
okay, that's Sodom and Gomorrah and some of that and the angels. You reject authority, that's the angels who came down, that's the people who came across from Egypt to Israel and rejected the authority of God in Moses and Aaron, and then you blaspheme God. Ultimately, there's a blaspheming of God. Just kind of core, underneath sin. We always talk about what are the things we should be doing that are right. You wanna know what you wanna do if you wanna do wrong? Just defile your flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme God, real easy. That's what sin's about, isn't it? I mean, we see all the sins. You can probably put every sin in one of those categories or all three. Then, Jude, not being tired of telling us what's wrong with this world, adds a new one. This is one we're not shown in the scriptures, but it was known by the people, and I've gotta tell you, I've had a conversation or two with people saying, I can't wait till you talk about this verse. Well, there's not a lot to talk about in this verse because we don't know a lot, but here's what it is. When the archangel Michael contending with Satan, so you got one of the lead angels, Gabriel and Michael, so it's Michael, contending with Satan. Now, the angels aren't named in the Bible. There's Gabriel named in the Bible. There's Michael named in the Bible. I don't think there are any others named in the Bible. We've kind of made up names for angels, but they're the two big guys in the angelic court of God. Gabriel, who did all the stuff with uh, Mary and Joseph and at Bethlehem, and Michael, who did some other things, and he's contending for Moses' body. Here's the thing that apparently happened, is that Moses had sinned, well, hello, all of us sinned, but Moses had sinned, and Satan wanted to take Moses' body, and Michael wouldn't let him do it. And there's this contention, and here's the thing, they were disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael did not put a judgment on him. He said, Lord, you put a judgment on Satan. So here's the point. The point is, is that people sin, angels sin, Satan sins. Jude is not letting anyone off the hook here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's interesting. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasonable animals, understand instinctively. He says in verse 11, woe to them, woe to them. And then Jude gives us three more examples. If you didn't have enough examples with Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other thing and the angels and Satan up on Mount Nebo, I'll give you three more. And these I'm not gonna tell you about, you'll have to look them up yourself. For they walked in the way of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember what happened there? And abandoned themselves for the sake of the gain of Balaam's error. Now Balaam is not someone you know, look him up. He was a prophet who turned against God's people. And there was gonna be judgment about it. It's a great story. It's, you know, his donkey talks to him and everything. It's really a cool story. But there was an error there. Not an error in the Bible, but an error in Balaam's character. And perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah was a man who got some people together and wanted to rebel against Moses and Aaron. So three bad dudes, Cain, Balaam, Korah. 
And all these people knew these stories. And they all knew them, and they said, you fit in one of these. Now, he comes back to their church. So he's kind of telling them all these Old Testament stories, and now he comes back. So this is interesting. So verse 12, but before I get to verse 12, let me just share. This book is written to a dispersed church. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Middle East, and let's call it the Near East, which would be the lower part of Europe, and that's where all these people were in the northern part of Africa, and the, um, what would be the eastern part of the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, Syria. This is where the church existed at this point in time, southern Russia. This is the church. Now remember, people didn't travel. So if you didn't grow up by the ocean, you never saw the ocean. If you didn't grow up by mountains, you never saw the mountains. If you didn't grow up by a desert, you never saw the desert. So he starts explaining what is happening in metaphors. So he's gone from real things to metaphors, but he does a series of metaphors knowing that not one metaphor works because if you've never seen the ocean, how would you know what a reef is? If you've never been in a pastoral area, how would you know what fruit trees are? If you've never been among sheep, how would you know what a shepherd does? And so this is what he does. He goes, the bad people, these ungodly people who are in your congregation are like, verse 12, hidden reefs at a love feast. Now you and I don't even understand a reef because we live in Florida and our reefs are below the surface. Our reefs that exist, and most of them have long been gone, sad to say, but the reefs that were there when I was a child, they're in 30, 40, 50, 70 feet of water. When a boat comes over a reef, they're not gonna touch the reef. They're not even gonna know the reef's there unless they have modern snorkels and, and masks and things like that. But the reefs in Greece were above and the ships would come, and if they got too close, the reefs at high tide would be just submerged. Reefs are sharp. Boats back then are made of wood. The boat would come across the reef and rip the hull of the boat off. This was done constantly by accident, and everyone around the sea, the Aegean Sea, the Ionian Sea, um, the Mediterranean Sea would know this. Again, those in the desert wouldn't have a clue about this. But what he's saying is, these people are in your congregation and they are ripping the hull of your church apart. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes, there are shepherds feeding themselves. Now, I'm not a shepherd. Don't shepherds feed themselves? No. Shepherds are supposed to feed the sheep. Now, if you lived in um, parts of Turkey and parts of lower Russia and parts of Israel, you would know this because it was nothing but sheep and herds and shepherds. And they were to protect the flocks from all the bad animals and they were to feed them and they were to move them where there was water. The shepherd was responsible for the sheep. But in these churches, the shepherds are only taking everything for themselves. They don't care about the sheep. And as we know, the people are the sheep, the shepherds are the leaders, and the leaders of the churches are ruining the churches. Now this is in the first century, this is in the 21st century. And then he doesn't stop there, he goes, 
waterless clouds. Now, if you and I only lived in Florida and we didn't travel and we didn't have all the weather channel and weather.com, we would not understand this because our clouds have water in them, right? When the cloud system comes across, there is water in that cloud system. And the night of uh, the, uh, up on the rooftop, we saw the clouds coming and we prayed that they would stay north of us because we knew they had water in them. Now in the desert, there aren't a lot of clouds. If you lived in the desert and you saw a cloud coming, you would pray for rain because you want clouds with water. In Florida, we occasionally pray for clouds without water because we want to do our things. But back then, you do not want a waterless cloud. And the leaders of the churches were like waterless clouds. They were clouds. They were leaders. They were giving nothing to the people. And then he goes on. He says they're swept along by the winds. They just kind of move about doing nothing but leading and taking their people astray. But he doesn't stop there. He goes, fruitless trees in late autumn. Now, if you lived in the areas uh, along the coast where the orange trees were and the date palms and some of those, those were trees with fruit. And they usually would have fruit twice a year, late spring and early autumn. But these trees had no fruit. He's saying, the leaders in your churches are like trees without fruit. Now, if you lived in an area where there were no fruit trees, you wouldn't understand this. You have a few little pines or a few little other things, and they don't have fruit on them. But he is trying to tell all of us this. And then finally, well, not finally, two more, verse 13, wild waves of the sea. There were certain parts of the Mediterranean Sea that were very rough, Elizabeth and I were on a ship once in the Mediterranean Sea where the waves were 45 feet high. I think we were on like the fourth floor and the water, I mean, might've been the fifth floor and it was coming up, the waves were coming up to our height. I said, what is going on? They said, oh, this is just normal. We're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, the waves get big. I'm going, I'm used to six foot waves, not 46 foot waves. They understood if they were seafaring people in that part, Northern Africa, when they did commerce with lower Europe and Italy, they were used to those big waves or they were used to understanding the big waves. And they're saying, these leaders are like raging seas. And then finally, he says this, they're wandering stars. Now this is amazing. We don't understand this nowadays, but the Eastern church, See, we don't know that there was an Eastern church. We think Syria, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Afghanistan was always Muslim and Islamic. Well, Muslim, Islam didn't come till the seventh century to those parts. They had become a part of the church. There were incredible Christian churches in those countries. And as you remember, because the Magi came from the east following a star, they loved to look at the stars because there were not a lot of people, it was dark at night, they looked at the stars and they saw the shooting stars, the wandering stars, they couldn't name those stars. 
They were good at naming stars. That was the beginning of the whole understanding of astronomy was in that part of, of the world. But these shooting stars, they couldn't get. And he's saying, your leaders are like those shooting stars. They're here, they're gone, they're going over there, they're moving across. And we don't get that here because we don't see the stars because of all the ambient light we have in South Florida. But they saw them. And so he shared and gave an example to all of them. And he said, there's going to be judgment against them. And he goes on in verse 14 and describes the judgment. And he uses Enoch, another example in the Old Testament, in the early parts of Genesis, and uses that in verse 15 to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. Now, I'm going to leave that for a moment. He gives us detail about grumblers and all deceit and all the things like that. But let's turn the page and go to the second part. It is the first of the year. I got to get a little positive for a moment. Verse 20. So it's about the ungodly and it's about, number two, the followers of Christ. Number t- verse 20. But you followers of Christ, beloved, he calls them. That's how we know they're followers of Christ. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Jesus would call that discipleship. Jesus would call that growth. Paul would call it growth. Jesus would call it discipleship. It's growing in your faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. See, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is here. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ who's the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe that? That is the key thing. All these other things come and all these other things go if you believe in Jesus Christ and have mercy on those who doubt. And then verse 23, I want you to underline this if it's your own Bible or highlight it in your your phone. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Isn't that amazing? God says he's gonna judge them into the fire and he says, I want you to snatch them out of the fire. What on earth is that? That is such, that's like the coolest verse in here. He's asking us to snatch people out of the fire. How do you do that? Let me share an example. It's in Matthew 16. You don't have to turn to it, but Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus took his disciples. He was up in Galilee. He's living. He's teaching his disciples, and they go on a a retreat, and they walk up 20 miles approximately to Caesarea Philippi to the beginning of the Jordan River. Now, you need to understand, in that part of the world, running water doesn't exist. You know, we live in Florida where it's all water. We live, you come from other parts of our country, other parts of Canada, other parts of the Caribbean. It's nothing but water. But there, there was no water. Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, which was worthless. And that's it. And a little river called the Jordan River. So they would go up to the headwaters of the Jordan River where it was beautiful. It was incredible. And out of the mountain came the spring that brought the Jordan River. And again, you go, well, that's pretty simple. Half of Florida is nothing but springs. 
Silver Springs, Itchituckney Springs, Alachua Springs. We have springs everywhere in Florida, but they didn't have them everywhere there. The springs that they did have, they never saw because they were way up high in the mountains, Mount Hebron and different places. But this was the place they saw the spring. It was an enormous spring, about half the size of the room we're in. Big spring, it would whirlpool and then it would flow out, come out of the mountain and it would start the river. And they developed a city there called Caesarea Philippi. Don't need to tell you about that. But let me tell you what they did there. So, this is the time of Greece as the leaders. It's Greek and Roman, right? And it was kind of the the time of Greece, about 100 BC. So, 100 years before when this became a city of and all that, they brought their mythology into this place. And let me just share what it was. If you know Greek mythology, the head of all of it is Cronus, the father of time, chronology, Cronus. And Cronus had three children in Greek mythology. He had Zeus, he had Poseidon, and he had Hades. They were all given lots to pick who would get the world. This is Greek mythology, not the Bible. And Zeus won, and Zeus got the earth and the heavens. And then Poseidon came second, and he got the um, oceans and the weather. Everybody loved Zeus, everybody loved Poseidon. The only thing left was the underworld, and Hades got the underworld. Hades got hell. Now, the only way to get to hell in Greek mythology was two ways. One was by death, being a bad person. You went to hell. Yes, other people besides followers of Christ believe in hell. You went to hell that way. Or the second way was to go through one of these springs that came out of the underworld and came to the real world. And so they believed this was the only place in that whole region where you could go into hell, into Hades. And they believed to appease Hades, who was the evil god, you would throw your children into it. It's child sacrifice. It was the most heinous thing. So they built a temple there. The temple there that they built, about 100 BC, was called Pan. It was the Pan Temple, P-A-N, named after the god Pan. The god Pan was the half animal, half human god that would run around in the forest and scare people. This is where you get the word panic from, from Pan. And the temple of Pan was there. Now Jesus comes to go to the headwaters of the Jordan River and they're sitting there down below. There's the temple of Pan. There's the cave and the opening and the spring behind the temple of Pan. It's still there to this day. The uh, ruins of Pan, uh, the temple of Pan and the ruins of the spring. The spring now comes underneath. They've kind of covered it up. It's there. Jesus is here. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, whom do people say that I am? And some says, they say you're Elijah. Maybe you're Moses. Maybe you're John the Baptist. And he says, but who do you say I am? You're Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter said. And do you remember what Jesus said back to Peter? Peter, you are right. And on this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now some of your Bibles say hell, it should say Hades, but we don't like that word. Do you see what it is? Now some churches through history, I'll pretend I'm Jesus, and Peter on this rock, here's Peter, Peter, this rock I will build my church. And some, as I was taught, Jesus said, on this rock I will build this church. And I was there one day talking to an authority there, and he said, think about this. Maybe it's upon this rock I will build my church, right in front of Hades. Do you see, God wants us to snatch people out of hell. And what better place to do it than when they are in front of it. So many people, I remember I talked to a pastor once who said, I have to leave South Florida, there are not enough Christians. I go, I thought that's why we're here. (laughs) He was serious, and you know where he went back to? I don't want to offend anybody, Ohio. (laughs) Hello, Ohio. Because there are more Christians in Ohio than Florida, so he thought. And probably there are. But I tell you what, God has called us to be in front of people that need to be snatched out of hell. Do you believe that? That's what this is about. And next week, we're gonna begin to talk about that. So I'm gonna leave that thought till next week about that whole thing, about what we as this church can do about that. Let's close with the last verses. And as I close, the team's gonna come back out and we're gonna sing a song. Verse 24, the third part is God. So you got the ungodly, you've got the followers of Christ, and then you got God himself. And this is what he says about God. Now to him who, the who is God, Christ, the spirit, who is number one, able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Here's the thing. We've just read 20 some verses of bad stuff. Korah, Cain, Balaam, angels impregnating women. I mean, it's pretty nasty stuff, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, but God through Christ can present you blameless before himself. You see, there is an answer to this problem. He is able to keep us from stumbling and he's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, who gets the joy? Is it God or is it us? And can I tell you, it's both. There is a joy, God God doesn't wanna send you to hell. God loved us so much that he sent his son. There is joy in God, with God, when someone comes to him. When you believe that day you believed in Jesus Christ for the first time, there was joy in God's heart. And today, if you come to Christ, there will be joy in God's heart. Now that's the part of interacting here. And then he goes in verse 25 to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's the beautiful thought here. Be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority. That's why we worship him, because we, he has glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. We don't reject authority, we accept the authority. Before all time, and now, and forevermore. That's past, present, future. Jude takes us from the worst sins in the Bible and brings us to the joy of knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ. And God is able to do that. Do you believe it? Isn't this a great book? And then he just finishes it so coolly. Amen. It is finished. What does amen mean? That's it, people. There's bad things happening in this world. God has called you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, faultless before the throne. How cool is that? And my friends, we are here as his ambassadors, his representatives to help others from stumbling into Hades, stumbling into hell, stumbling their way through. We've got some responsibility. Now, it's not my fault that someone goes to hell or accepts Christ or doesn't, but it's my responsibility that I can do anything possible in my means to share the love of Christ. And that's what we wanna do this coming year. Amen? Now, we're gonna sing those last two verses in one of my favorite songs called The Doxology of Jude, which our good friend Clay wrote. He didn't write it, he wrote the music, God wrote the words. And we're gonna sing that and we're gonna stand. After we sing that, if you'd like to come forward and receive and believe in Jesus for the first time, come forward. If you've been away from God and Christ for years or months or days, come forward. Pray with us. I'm gonna be standing here. Elizabeth's gonna be standing here. Others will be standing here. We'd love to pray once the song is over. We want you not to leave here not knowing your final destination. Because my friends, I don't know about you, but do you see how many people died this week? All these famous people dying all week long. I'm thinking, wow, a whole generation's leaving us. It was like every day, new people. I don't know how long we have. I have no idea how long we have, but I do know we have this moment. Get it right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And then I want you to make it a great year. This is 2023. It's hard to believe. God is good. Let us stand and sing. Amen.